tonight what we're going to do is we're really going to finish the very end of a long section that we've been working through. Uh, you may not have realized that we've been working through a section. This may be your first time here. This may be, you may not have been here in a while, but uh, what we're coming to here tonight is the, the kind of the final exclamation point to a big, long strand of verses, a big train of thought that Paul's been working through that's centralized on a theme. Uh, and this theme is uh, putting on Christ, to be more like Christ, to imitate Christ, for you to become less of you and to be more like Christ, for the purpose of the fact that we are the body of Christ, that we are the church of Christ. This has been a, a string of thoughts that he's put together here in chapter 3 of Colossians. And so tonight we're going to actually see the final uh, kind of portion of this strand before he kind of switches gears, which we'll look at in November. So what I've titled tonight, uh, it's, I've, I've titled it Christ from the Inside Out. Because what Paul has done up until this point, which we are going to read because I want you guys to see the flow of thought, especially if you haven't been here for a few weeks, is... He, he, he's, his theme is he wants us to be like Christ. In fact, if we have died and been crucified with Christ and been raised with Christ, then you should be identified as the body of Christ. This should be the thing that people know you for. This should be the thing that permeates from you. This should be your identity. This should be what you're striving towards. And this should be the thing that really defines who you are in this world, that you are a Christ follower and that you are the body of Christ. But what we're going to look at tonight that we see in verses 15, 16, and 17 is really the heart of this transformation. And that it has to be from the inside out. It has to be in the heart. It has to be in the mind. It has to be in the inner man. It has to be there because anything other than an inward transformation is simply uh, pharisaical. It's fake. It's superficial, and in fact, all you're wanting to do is manipulate the people around you for the sake of gaining some sort of advantage in this world by pretending to be like Christ. But tonight, we're going to see that Paul is, is ending this long thought with the very clear uh, message of this change, this transformation has to take place from the inside, has to take place from your mind, from your heart. And so, again, like I said, I'm going to read through Colossians 1 all the way to where we're going to go tonight, just again to, to place our mind back into this, this strand of thought that Paul has walked us through. So look at Colossians 3, chapter 1, or sorry, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above not on things that are on this earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there's no, uh, not Greek 
and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And then what we're going to work through tonight, verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanks, uh, thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give thanks to God the Father through him. It's such a good passage. I mean, it's, I feel like that's just a passage that we need to be committed to reading every single morning as we get up and every single day because it just reminds us just the preeminence of Christ. It reminds us just the significance of Christ, the importance of Christ, and how insignificant we are. The little things that we chase after, the little things we complain about, these things in this world that are not going according to our plan, when we read something like this, it should put all that in perspective. Who cares if I don't get my way? What does it matter if, if I'm not getting to fulfill my, my plans and my dreams and these things that I think are just the best for me? I don't even know what's best for me. But what I do know from these passages is that Christ has done some things in my life. Christ has done some things in your life that allows you to have this amazing peace with him. That you are capable for the first time ever to actually put off these things that are, that are attacking you, these things that are causing you to, to trust in this world and trust in your flesh and trust in, in all these things that are fading away. And for the first time ever, you can actually put on things like compassion and humility and kindness and patience. That was impossible before. And even the closest version you could come to any of that was all self-centered and fake and superficial. As we read this passage, what it should show us more than anything is that we need to be done with ourselves. And we need to be showing Christ to others through our life from the inside out. And it's not just a self-centered motivation. This is because we are the church. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are all connected through his death on the cross and through his precious blood that paid the price for us because he ransomed us. And if we are his body, then we should live in a way that reflects him, in a way that's worthy, in a way that is, is, is in perfect, uh, perfect equal balance with him. Because we are the church and are in Christ, the body of Christ, we must therefore in every aspect of our life put on Christ and get rid of ourselves. So let me pray really quickly, and then we're going to get to see this exclamation point from Paul to wrap up this section to show us how we can be less of ourselves and more like Christ. Let's pray. Lord, make these words so clear to us 
Lord, allow these words to be uh, just, just words that are, that are showing us how to live, words that are penetrating our hearts so that we know to, to, these aren't just words just to have memorized. These aren't words just to, to know in the back of our mind for conversations, but these are words that are living and active, that they should be piercing our hearts, that they should be causing us to, to really discern in our mind what is best and how to live. Let these words, let these three verses tonight be something that just permeates uh, our entire soul in our thoughts, in our actions, in our words. Let these things just rule in our life. Let us encourage one another and provoke one another to live in this way, to live in a way that is just, uh, just, just reflective and, and full of thanksgiving towards you. Let us do this with confidence as we look through this passage and apply it to our life. In your heavenly name, amen. So let's dive in because I feel like we have a lot tonight. I might surprise myself and fly through, but I have just so much good content that we're going to get to walk through tonight. I'm so excited. So the way I've kind of broken this down uh, is uh, we're going to break this down into uh, the way that we can change ourselves from the inside out, that the Lord is actually changing us rather, is, uh, is understanding a, a new piece uh, a new palace, and then a new priority. And as we get through these, you're going to see the connection that's going to help you guys hopefully to remember as you guys are trying to walk through this uh, text and try to live it out in your lives. So let's look first at a new piece. A new piece. Verse 15 says, And let the, the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and to be thankful. Now, don't, don't start off the fact by looking at the inlet as if this is some passive thing, as if there is something that's happening and you're supposed to just sit back and, and let this happen as if it's already actively going to be happening. Like, I'm a Christian, and because I have the Holy Spirit in me, all I have to do is kind of sit back and let this thing happen to me. But this is not the actual understanding. In fact, it be, better be said, you must make the peace of Christ rule in your heart. You must make the peace of Christ rule in your heart. This is active. This is difficult. This is fighting. This is something that is going to be a day in and day out battle. This peace can really be understood in, in three different ways. When you start studying the word peace and all the different ways it's used in the scriptures in different places, the best way we can understand peace, we're, we're going to look at it in three ways. The first understanding of peace is kind of like a treaty or a pact or a contract. Uh, this is uh, now to say that because we have the peace of Christ within us, we are now on the same team as Christ. And remember, in chapter 1, we, we, we learned that we, before we knew him, we were hostile to God. That we were hostile towards God. But through Christ, we have been reconciled to him. We have peace with him. We have peace between us and the Father that is through Christ and his blood. This treaty was paid for through the blood of Christ. So one way we can understand this is now that if you have the peace of Christ within you, if you are in this room as a believer, you are now on the same team as Christ. You are part of the same family of Christ. You are now the body of Christ. There is a union there where before you were hostile to him. You were enemies with God. A second way we can understand this word peace is probably what the world would define peace as, but there is a biblical side to it as well, and that is safety and security. 
when you have the peace of Christ, there is a safety and security, but not a temporal. It's, it's not a temporary. It's not the sense that if you become a Christian, all of a sudden your life gets a lot easier. We know this. This is not the case. It's not the case that once you become a Christian, all of a sudden life just gets easier. In fact, if you're doing things correctly, according to what the scriptures say, things might actually get harder and they probably will get harder. And in fact, you only grow because things get harder. This safety and security is actually talking about eternal safety and security. There are day-to-day -day, uh, implications of this. If you are trusting the Lord, when things bad are happening around you, you can have a sense of peace because you understand that it does not matter what happens to you, you have eternal security and safety with the Lord. The worst thing that can happen to you, death, is actually gain because you no longer have to be in this world and instead you get to be with Christ forever. No more sin, no more pain, no more tears. So it's like a treaty, uh, it's this idea of security, but probably the most important thing is the possessive nature of it. This peace has a possessive nature to it because it is of Christ. It is in Christ. It is by Christ, for Christ, from Christ, through Christ. Whatever adjective you want to put there, it is connected to Christ. And we know this. Romans 5 lets us know where this peace came from. Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, Past tense, if you were a believer in this room, you have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So how do we get this peace? It's we're justified by the faith by faith in him. This is, a, this is a gift that is given from him. He opens our eyes, he opens our heart, and through that, we gain peace. We are justified in that moment. It is not by something that you have earned. It is not something that you can work. In fact, all the other world religions that are constantly seeking after some level of peace, I mean, you probably see it in your coworkers. Maybe you see it in your family. Maybe you even see it in your own heart where you're striving after some sort of false counterfeit peace in this world by human means. The only eternal, long-lasting peace can only be found in Christ. And that is not something that you can earn or work or do any level of merit to gain. True eternal peace is found always in Christ, through Christ, being justified by faith and not your works. But how many times do we just find people around us uh, unbelievers or, or even people that are believers that have just lost sight of this, who are, who are toiling and struggling and stressing out and, and full of anxiety, just trying to get some level of stability and peace in their life. But true peace is only found through Christ. And that peace and security, that treaty that we can have with him, that is something that is eternal and everlasting which does bring it a day-to-day -day peace. It doesn't mean that the storm goes away. It doesn't mean that the fight goes away. In fact, it may seem like a hurricane's going on all around you, but on the inside, there is a peace of Christ that is ruling in your heart. This is a treaty and security that comes only through Christ. And man, this is so foreign to this world. 
And, and maybe some of you have some stories, maybe it's something that you will even talk about in your small group this evening, but maybe some of you even have stories of somebody coming up to you and they just see a peace that's in you. They see this peace where it doesn't matter what terrible thing goes on in your life. It just seems that nothing seems to shake you. You are firmly rooted in Christ. That is a peace and a security that cannot be shaken because it starts from the inside out. So now that we understand that this is a new peace that is different from this world, this peace that was given to you that you did not earn through Christ, what is this peace supposed to do? Well, it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. This word rule, we've seen this word already before in chapter 2, where it says, don't let the false teachers disqualify you because you're not, you know, obeying the Sabbath or doing the festivals. He's already used this word before talking about disqualifying. But this word rule is, uh, is, is to officiate or to referee or to be an arbitrator or to, to make some sort of critical decision. So, so try to wrap your brain for a moment. I'm, I'm going to see if I can paint this picture for you so you can see it in your mind. So imagine for a second a courtroom. And usually when you have a courtroom, there's, there's three kind of parties or three different groups that are happening. You have the two that are at odds with one another, and then standing in between them is the arbitrator. Standing in between them is the judge or the officiate or whoever it is that is, is the person that's trying to, uh, to, to ex hold to the rules, explain the rules, make things official, hold things together. And so on one side, you have your old self. You have your flesh. This is your passions, your desires, your lusts, your urges. The natural you is on one side of this. And it wages war. This is all from verses 5 and 8 in chapter 3. You can see them down below if you have your Bible. These are the things that are, that are, that are attacking you, that are accusing you, that are constantly coming after you in your mind. And then on the other side, because you are in Christ, you have a new self which is defined as compassion and kindness and humility and love and forgiveness. These are the things we see in verses 12 and 13 prior in chapter, th uh, chapter 3. And standing there, standing there in the middle is the knowledge and understanding of the peace of Christ. Standing as an officiate and a judge, an arbitrator over it. And as this war is waging on, instead of just forgetting about the peace that you have with Christ and letting it fall out of your mind and just get, being so consumed with yourself or co so consumed with your comforts in this world where it's just going to be this terrible battle. I mean, just imagine a courtroom scene between two people that are at odds with one another without a judge. Imagine that what that courtroom would look like. It would be absolutely terrible. No one's following the rules, screaming, yelling. I mean, probably physical altercations that are happening. I mean, this is a, a courtroom scene that is not under control. This is not Judge Judy. Judge Judy has a very good control over her courtroom. This is something that is out of control. And so the, the Christian, the believer, that is, has that temptation, that has that battle waging war in their mind and in their heart, what Paul is telling us is that you have the peace of Christ. So you need to let it officiate and rule and referee and make critical decisions in your heart. Because the heart is the setting. 
If the rule helps us understand the characters or the, or the players in this battle, the heart tells us the setting. This war that's waging, that you need to let the, the peace of Christ rule, this setting is in your heart. One biblical dictionary defines this heart, this word that's used, um, as the soul or the mind, as it is the fountain and the seat of your thoughts. It's the fountain and seat of your thoughts, of your passions, of your desires, of your appetites, of your affections, of your purposes and your endeavors. And even as I say those things, you understand that all those things can have good moments where you're actually pursuing the things that are of Christ, but you also know that those are the same things that can be pursuing the things of the flesh. That there is that war that is waging on. Paul spoke of it very clearly when he said, I keep doing the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. That is the war that is happening here. Officiating in the mind's battlefield and that officiating has to be with the peace of Christ. So when the battle between your flesh and spirit take place in your inner self, in your heart, do you let the peace of Christ rule that battle? And by the way, you already have the peace of Christ if you're in him. You are no longer at odds with him. You are on the same team as him. You have safety and security eternally with him. So the moment that temptation rises to the surface in your heart and in your mind, does that reality of that peace come to your mind? When, when that person comes across the courtroom, your old self, and it, and it attacks you and it wants to fulfill and gratify the desires of the flesh, do you allow, do you make, do you remember, do you meditate on the fact that you have the peace of Christ and let that rule your heart? When the duel begins to take place in your mind, do you remember, one, that you have eternal security, safety, and peace with God forever? When that temptation comes to your mind, where you want to gratify the desires of the flesh, do you first and foremost remember that you are eternally uh, safe, eternally kept, eternally abiding in Christ forever? Do you remember that? Do you hold to that? Do you let your mind dwell on that in the moment of temptation? And two... When the duel begins to take place in your mind, when that temptation comes to your mind, do you remember that you and Christ are now on the same team? That you and him are now one. You used to be at odds. You used to be an enemy. You used to be combating him all the time because your desires were against his desires, but now you are one. So when the temptation comes up, when, when, when the flesh comes up, do you remember that you are now one with him? You have peace with him. This is a peace that the world does not understand. And when you let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, that's where the battle against sin, you find victory. Because in that moment, you remember, no, I have eternal security with him. I have, I've made a treaty and a pact and a covenant with him. We are now one. And this was a gift given to me that I did not earn. How could I possibly sin against my Heavenly Father? How could I possibly sin against Christ? So in order to, to be like Christ, in order to imitate Him and to align yourself with Him in your mind, you have to let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. 
When you are facing an opportunity to either trust and believe in God and his word or to choose only to trust yourself in what you see, do you actively consider the implications of your peace in Christ? And this is an odd thing. Those of you who have been successful in this, the, the times where you've actually been able to, to let the, the peace of Christ rule in your heart in those moments of temptation, when you want to trust in your own senses and in your own self and what you see instead of trusting God and his word, when you actually in that moment stop and say, no, the peace of Christ is going to rule in my heart. I'm not going to let the flesh take over my mind. When people see this in you, it is like, it, I mean, it is like an alien in this world. I mean, it, it is odd. And, and in fact, even amongst believers, it may seem like, how on earth? I mean, they're going through such a hard time right now. How are they just even keel right now? How are they just trusting the Lord? How are they not a, an emotional basket case? How is this possible? And in fact, this is exactly the picture we get in Philippians 4. Philippians 4, I'll read it out loud. Philippians 4, verse 6, it says, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then listen to this in verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Do you see the picture there? The, your flesh is coming against you. You're not in control. You want things to be your way. You want to gratify that fleshly desire. You want to sin. You want to go against your heavenly father who's already purchased you with his blood. And what you want to do is you want control and you want to gratify and you want to indulge in your fleshly desires. And so in that moment, you, you almost give in to the anxiety or you give in to whatever sin it is, but instead... Instead of engaging in the back-and-forth argument in the courtroom scene, instead you stop and you remember that you have the peace of Christ. And imagine, imagine again, the image of, of the judge stepping up and no more arguing, no more fighting. Now he's going to rule the courtroom. Now he's going to control your mind. And guess what? Now he's going to guard your heart and guard your mind. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. Such a beautiful picture. Not just amazing to think through. That when you let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, that some of the worst things can happen in your life. Things that maybe you a year ago or you two years ago or, or maybe even you last week would have crumbled apart or, you know, you know, given into that sin or whatever it is, but instead... You actually are being guarded and you have a peace within you because you're letting him rule your heart. You're not letting you rule your heart. You're not letting your senses or your emotions or your passions or your sin rule your heart. You're letting the peace of Christ rule your heart. And this is hard. It's difficult. But also don't get caught up uh, and sucked into the fact that this is a personal battle. Yes, this is a personal battle individually for each one of us, but don't get so self-centered where this is, you think this is just all about you. This is all about your battle with your sin, and, and as long as you're just focused on yourself, because there have been so many people, including myself, that have gotten so caught up in that battle with ourself, we have kind of lost sight of the bigger picture. But Paul pulls us back into the context of what this battle is for. This battle is not all about you. This battle is not so you can just become the best version of yourself. This battle has greater implications. And so look as, it, look as we continue in verse 15. It says, 
uh, to which indeed you were called in one body. As we through Christ gain victory in these, victories in these battles, as we put on compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness, pay all of our sinful flesh, this is all in the backdrop of doing it not for self-promotion or self-centeredness or any type of selfish mindset, but is out of the love, which is the perfect bond of harmony within the church. And let the peace of Christ ruin your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. Those here within the church that have that peace of Christ, guys, we're doing this all together. That battle that you think that you can't win, that, that you just feel like you're so overwhelmed because your flesh is just waging war against you. And you're trying to walk by the Spirit so you don't gratify the desires of the flesh. But guys, we're doing this together. We have been called as the body to do this for unity. We fight sin. We put off the old man. We put on Christ. We bear up with one another in our relationships when they get hard. We forgive one another when we're wrong. We love one another. Why? Because you were called in one body. You're not just a bunch of individuals just trying to live your life a certain way just to make yourself feel better. We are doing this as the church, as the body of Christ. Unity is crucial. The oneness of believers drives our fight. The oneness of the believers drives our fight. And Paul, kind of unexpectedly, it seems kind of odd here at the very end, but tagged on here at the very end, it says, and be thankful. And be thankful. It may seem unexpected. It's pretty simple, just saying be thankful. But I mean, if you think about what we're really talking about here, that you've been given the peace of Christ, that you now are no longer at hostility with God, which, by the way, you did nothing to deserve that. There's nothing special about you that allowed you not to have hostility with God. And now you actually are able to fight your flesh and let the, the peace of God rule in your heart. And you're a part of the body of Christ. When you just look at all the, 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 the truths that are packed in here, especially in verses 1 all the way to, to verse 17, what really permeates from that is there should be an overwhelming sense of thankfulness. And in fact, you're going to notice in verses 15, verses 16, and verses 17, all three of these verses here at the very end all mention thankfulness. Because as you soak in and you take in 1 through 17, the emotion that should be, that the thought that should be coming is overwhelming, uh, overflowing with thanksgiving. It should be overflowing with thanksgiving. Because if you're finally able to have the, the peace of Christ guard your heart in those moments of, of potential sin, those of you who have been in the trenches of those, of those battles, you, there should be thankfulness. I don't understand how on earth there would be thankfulness now that you have someone that's standing there and, and officiating and guarding and ruling your heart with his peace. This new peace is something that is so special. But he doesn't stop there. It's not just making sure we must make the peace of Christ rule in your heart. But second, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Here we see the second command. And again, just like the first one, don't read it as let the word as if it's some passive thing that you're sitting back and taking in. This is you must make the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
understand it in the active role. You are doing something about it. When you get up in the morning, you're actively making sure that you are letting the word of God dwell in you richly. You must make the word of God dwell in you richly. Paul gives us here, uh, gives us here uh, the, the means of our growth in Christ-likeness. This is the game plan for putting on Christ daily. It is through the revelation of the word of God, his holy and perfect scriptures. In the word he uses here, we see the word of Christ, which is his revelation, and it says that it should dwell. Dwell can be understood to live in, or to take up residence in, or to make it a home within you. But Paul doesn't just leave it, uh, the door open with this idea that uh, we should just almost like, imagine that, that, you have, that you, your body represents almost like a house, and it says, let the word of God dwell. It's like, oh, come on, come on in. Didn't really clean up, my bad. Uh, here, I've actually got a room over here for you. It's the guest room. It's perfect. I, I, I made the bed. You might find a couple things under the bed. Sorry about that. But here, I, you know, I, I sprayed it with Febreze. It smells good in there. I'm going to bake some cookies later. But here, this is your room, God. Here it is. And you take the word of God and you let it stay in that room. This is not the picture. This is probably mainstream evangelicalism, where it's like you have your house, and as long as God takes up residence in one of the rooms of your house, you're doing awesome. You're doing good because for the most part, I mean, most people just kind of like God in the crawl space or maybe in the attic, or maybe they just kind of wave out the window and say, hey, Jesus, you can't come in because there's some really bad stuff in here, but I'm going to wave at you out the window. I mean, maybe that's how the world looks at it, but this is not the idea of just letting Christ or the word of God kind of take one of the rooms in your house because he qualifies this dwelling. He qualifies the dwelling. Look what he says. He says, let the word of God dwell in you richly. You could replace the word richly with abundantly or even better, extravagantly. This gives us the word picture of letting God's truth not only just open rain, uh, not only just take a little part of your house, but this is open rain in the entirety of your house. This is, and really, this is not even a renovation. This is a transformation of your house into an extravagant palace. The word image here of richly is talking about it, it takes over everything and there's actually a value to it. Before, your, li your, your house, your life is literally just a worthless shack. It's, it's worth nothing. It's pathetic. It's disgusting. It's filthy rags. But now that you have the word of Christ dwelling within you richly, now it's a transformation from a shack into a beautiful palace. I've never been to a palace. I don't know a lot of people that just kind of casually go to palaces. That'd be nice. The closest I could think of is I was trying to think of like, you know, palaces or anything is I, I went to a very fancy hotel in Buckhead for me and Allison's 10 year anniversary. Um, that was the, I, I don't know if you remember, that's when we pulled up in our awesome minivan and uh, they were like, can we help you? And I was like, no, I got it. We're good. I don't want to tip you. Uh, and so uh, that, that was pretty much, and, and we walked around everywhere because we knew every time we wanted our car, we had to like get the valet to pull it out. We had to tip him every time. And I'm just like, we'll walk everywhere. That's fine. I think we walked like seven blocks to get like dinner one night. It was okay. We, I didn't have to tip anybody to get my minivan. Uh, we did not belong. But even in that hotel, which we did not belong in, it, I mean, it was, it was really, really nice. I mean, it wasn't even a palace. It was just kind of a nice hotel. But, but a, a couple things I do know about palaces, and some of it you can probably see in a fancy hotel or maybe some sort of fancy house you've been in. But there's a couple things that are definitely true. Number one, it's extravagance. The, the, the palaces or the really nice place, it's extravagance isn't isolated to just some parts. 
It's not like in a palace they're like, well, this is the fancy side and this is the commoner side for peasants. Like usually in a palace, I mean, what I do know is it, it, it permeates everything. It's everywhere. I mean, and, and not just every room, but even the fine details of the house. I mean, you probably have like door handles that cost like $46 per door handle. I don't know. I mean, like it's, it's probably these, this, this idea that every tiny little detail of the house is amazing and has immense value. Secondly, none of it is fake or superficial. A true palace, if we're talking about a true palace, like, I mean, we're talking like Disney princess, I, I guess actually the Disney palace is probably superficial and fake, now that I think about it. But if we're talking about a real palace, I mean, we're talking like Europe now, a really nice palace, uh, it's not fake, it's not superficial, it has legitimate value, and it would be appraised at an astronomical level. Immense value. And then lastly, if, if it's a true palace, its influence cannot go unnoticed. I mean, again, just imagine your neighborhood and then you pull in, like you pull out tomorrow in the morning and someone has completely taken a rid got rid of a house and just put a palace right in the middle of your neighborhood. That's, that's not casual. That's going to stick out. That's going to have an influence in the area. People are going to be pretty excited because they think the value of their house is shot up because of this beautiful palace that's in there. It has an influence. These are all things that are true of a palace. And so the reason I even named this point the new palace is because this is the image that should be here, that, you're, that, that I want you to hear and listen. A palace is through and through. You don't ever need a sign that states that it's a palace. The tiny details of the palace shows that it's a palace. The fact that everything actually has true value on the inside shows that it's a palace. And the fact that even walking up to it, you're like, that is a palace. You didn't need a sign in the front that says, hey, this is a palace. It sticks out. It's noticeable. Guys, the word of God should permeate every area, detail, corner, every nook and cranny of your life. Not superficially, not partially, not fake, but authentically. Showing the true pricelessness and value of the word. And when you live this way, saturating yourself in the word, it has no choice but to come bursting out of your life. It is so noticeable. That's the image that Paul wants you to see here. If you're actually allowing the Word of God to dwell richly within you, extravagantly in you, there are going to be some implications as far as your sphere of life. It will be noticeable. You don't have to convince someone that, that you know some scripture or that the Word of God is something you live by if it's actually permeating out of you, if it's bursting out of you. The person that's actually letting the Word of God dwell in them richly, most people in their sphere of living, they just instantly know that. Just like how you would walk, drive by a palace and no one has to tell you it's a palace. Because every detail of their life, every detail of that palace shows that it has value. Saturate your inner life with the scriptures. Every part of you. All the places you go, all the people you know, all the hobbies you have, all the things you think about, the things that you put up in your room, let every part of your life be elegantly dressed, elegantly put on, elegantly valued with the Word of God. That's the image here. 
This is active. This takes work. This is something that is, is going to seem overwhelming at first because right now some of you understand that you're, you're letting the word dwell. It's kind of like putting it off in a little guest room. That's probably how it defines most of us. But guys, this is the word of God. This is so that we can align our minds with Christ's mind. If we are to be like Christ and we are to, to imitate him in everything we do, if we are to, to be the body of Christ, that means we need to have the mind of Christ. And that's only found through his scriptures. So we, we got to gobble it up. So, so the, the obvious question here is, is how's, your, how's your scripture reading? Is this a strong point? I mean, are, are, you, are you realizing that you have a, I mean, you have a blank check of God's truth to, to fill up and to renovate and to really replace your house with the palace? This is a blank check. His truth is never ending and eternal. And, and I've seen this. I've seen this with, with new converts, people that, are just, uh, that, that have just gotten to know the Lord. And they just can't stop reading, and they're just reading, and they're reading, and they're reading. They're asking questions, and, they're, and like, you can't even have a conversation with them without them bringing up the word. It's just oozing out of them because they're just soaking it all in. This is the image that Paul wants us to have. This should be every believer. Every single believer. And then he shows us exactly what this looks like. If the word is ritually dwelling within you, what are some things that we should see in the believer in their life, in their day-to-day living? Well, they're going to be teaching one another. They're going to be admonishing one another uh, in all wisdom. They're going to be singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. These are both proactive and reactive conducts of the true believer's life. That means that you're proactively wanting to teach and admonish people for the sake of the unity of the body, but you're also reactively. You see something in a brother or sister that is, that is an error or that's not in alignment, and you desire to teach them or admonish them so that their mind can be in unity with Christ. With all wisdom. You're not doing this superficially. Superficially, You're not doing this as a hypocrite. You're not doing this just because you want to show off your, your wealth of knowledge. You're doing it in all wisdom. You're doing it because you desire to see unity within the body. That means you love the person next to you and you desire them to grow in Christ's likeness. So you're willing to teach or counsel them. You're willing to, uh, to correct their error, not to push them down and to raise you up, but because you desire to see unity between you and them in Christ. That's your desire. I mean, we have every excuse. I'm not a good teacher. I'm not good with my words. I don't really know God's word well enough to do that. I mean, how am I supposed to teach somebody if I don't really know the word of God? I mean, what would I say? What if they have a response to that? You know, who am I to correct somebody? I mean, if I'm sitting, going around admonishing people or whatever, isn't that just unloving? Well, I would actually argue the opposite. Because if you are desiring to, to have unity of mind by being shaped and growing by the word of God, then, then you actually have to do these things or you're not being loving. So let me, I, wanna, I want you to, to see this first. We cannot grow without each other teaching and admonishing one another. And Paul's already said this in chapter 1. Chapter 1 said, It is God we proclaim, warning everyone, there's the admonishment, teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present 
everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul's already said this to the Colossians. The only way we're going to mature as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ, is by teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. This has to happen. So for you not to be teaching one another and counseling one another and admonishing one another, that must mean that you don't desire for them to grow in maturity. Are you going to do it perfectly? No. And when you wrong someone, guess what they're supposed to do? Forgive you as the Lord has forgiven you. When you keep on trying to go and counsel and admonish someone and you're trying to, to get them to see the unity of Christ and have the same mind of Christ, and they're just, I mean, they're like, I mean, they just don't see it. Or they, they're kind of like, yeah, I know I need to go to church more. I need to read my Bible more. And, and you're just like, man, I'm having such a hard time. Well, first, Paul did say that he was toiling and struggling with this. So this is difficult. But, but two, I mean, we just got done reading that we need to bear with one another. I mean, at what point are you going to be like, nope, call it, done, I am done with that relationship. They, they just have no motive. I mean, what are you doing? We are the church. We bear with one another. We forgive one another so that we can have the perfect bond of unity, which is love. We love one another. This is not done arrogantly. This is not done so you can show off who you are. This is done in wisdom. Wisdom is not this lofty, heady knowledge that you know. Wisdom is you've actually lived it out in your own life. You have experiential knowledge. You have put this into practice. You have already taken the log out of your own eye so that you can go and take the speck out of your brother's eye through teaching and admonishing, knowing that it's going to mature them and it's going to mature you so that we can grow in unity as the church as we become like Christ. It's a beautiful picture. But not only is it teaching and admonishing, when you let the word of God dwell in you richly, there's also singing. But I have a terrible voice. If any of you heard me on the mic singing happy birthday, you would know I have a terrible voice. There's not amount of, a certain amount of teaching that can make this better. But this is not about your voice. This is not about you. This is the fact that when you have the word of God dwelling in you richly, and it permeates every part of your soul and body, you can't help but to sing to the Lord. You can't help but to express these things to the Lord with a heart of thankfulness. These different words here are just Paul giving a, different, uh, a few different ideas of what these singing could be. Psalms is literally taking Old Testament songs and putting it to music. Hymns were expressions of praise declaring the truth about God. In fact, if you remember the very beginning of Colossians, it starts with a hymn in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1, which is a hymn that the early church sang. And then spiritual songs, these were songs emphasizing the testimony for what God has done for you. When the word of God is dwelling rich within you, these are the ways that it will naturally flow out. You're going to teach and counsel one another. When you see error, you're going to admonish one another. And when you are, are looking at what God has done in your life and who he is and how pathetic we are as human beings, you're going to sing unto the Lord. Not all about your voice and how I sound or any of that, but it's just about you and God because you want to offer up worship and love to him because you want unity of mind with him. So when people look at you, when the people in your sphere of life look at your life, when they look at your words, your thoughts, your actions, your patterns, your emotions, 
your reactions, your direction, what do they see? Do they see the word of God bursting out of the seams of your life? You can't even have a conversation without somehow bringing it back to the word because you're just gobbling it up. When you hear error, that you, just, you want to address it, not because you, you want to put them in their place or you lift yourself up. It's because you want to make sure there's clarity and unity between brothers and sisters. Is it going to be awkward? Yeah, absolutely it's going to be awkward. But that's how we mature in Christ. It has to be through those things. And it's hard. I mean, Paul said he's struggling, toiling. This is difficult. Do they, do they see an extravagant palace of the Word of God? Do they see the evidences of the Word of God bursting forth from your life? Striving for clarity, striving for unity, striving for purity, striving for wisdom, overflowing with thankfulness. There it is again. Because the Christian life that is ruled by the peace of Christ, the Christian life that has the word of God dwelling in it richly is going to overflow with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving will be on your lips all the day. Not complaining, not upset because things are going your way, but just thanksgiving. Because you get to be a part of this plan and a part of this unity that would not have been possible without his peace. And then finally, we see the new priority. He finishes this long train of thought with this large emphasis, which really is so simple, and yet it comprehends everything we've been talking about. In whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And there it is again, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I love that it uses word and deed because it truly is everything. It's the total interaction with the world around you, your sphere of life, is everything. This is not just the crucial moments of your life. This isn't just the highlights of our day. This is not just, uh, it can't be boiled down to something as simple, just your big decisions, like, oh, all your big decisions and life choices need to be considerate of Christ and his name, but just the small mundane things, that doesn't really matter. That's not the image here. Even the things that seem mundane, pointless, and worthless need to be taken in consideration as you prioritize Christ in your life. And actually, as you're letting the peace of Christ rule your heart and letting the word dwell richly within you, it's not that you do worth, worthless things in the name of Christ, it's that you begin to abandon worthless things in the name of Christ. That's really what it is. As you start prioritizing Christ because you understand his peace and because you're letting the word of God dwell within you richly, you start abandoning the worthless things. All those things that you could possibly think of that you may consider gray area issues or small mundane things, the small stuff like, you know, taking your dog outside to use the bathroom or, you know, microwaving something or maybe just like stopping it. I mean, every little thing is, is all for the name of Christ because it defines you. You are Christ. That is your identity. 
Everything in your life is inconsiderate of Christ. In the tiny, mundane, worthless things of your life, you start abandoning. Because as you grow and are matured and have your mind in alignment with Christ, you start realizing that you're no longer choosing between sinful things and bad things in your decisions, but now you're choosing between good and better. And then as you grow and mature more, now your decisions are not between good and better, but you're choosing between better and best. And the things that you probably went and got counsel about back when you were 18, 19, 20, as you go down the line, you look back, you're like, that's not even an issue for me now. I, don't, I would never even ask that question now because now the answer seems so obvious to me. That's the maturing process. Because you are now starting to see what a life that's prioritized by, life, uh, prioritized by Christ looks like. And this is a process. And this is a process that is difficult. But do not forget the context that we are all in this together as the church. We are the bride of Christ. We're all here together to encourage one another, to bear with one another, to forgive one another, and to love one another as we are all on this trek together. When you understand the true peace of Christ, and when you are soaking up the truth of God each day, reading, submitting, growing, teaching, admonishing, singing, thanking the Lord, Christ becomes your every thought, word, and deed. All of it. And if you remember, this really was the central message of this entire letter. He's repeating himself. The central theme and, and drive of this entire letter, which is all the way back in chapter 2, verse 6. Remember, Paul told the Colossians, Therefore, as you received Christ uh, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught and there it is again abounding in thanksgiving this needs to be our life christ becomes the number one priority of your life because christ is your life colossians 2 20 says i have been crucified with christ it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Man, I feel like that verse in, in Galatians 2 verse 20, I, I feel like that just pulls everything together. It's not the best Christian version of you. It's not getting some sort of peace with God. As long as you have peace, now I'm going to go my own way. It's not just reading the Bible so you can check off a box or so you can gain some verses or so you can have the basic Christian dialogue with people Sunday and Thursday night. It's the fact that you are no longer living, but it's Christ who lives in you. He is your priority. And it's so obvious to the people in your sphere of life. It's literally bursting from the seams because the word of God is dwelling within you richly. We have this new peace. We can be a new palace that's just showing the word of God so evidently to the people around us. And then we have a new priority that is evident to the people in our lives. You are done with you. Live by faith and live in Christ. Let's pray.
Lord, as the body of Christ, as we sit here as your children, as we sit here in this room as just young people that are just trying to, to wade through the distractions and the confusions of life. Lord, some of us can't even get to the first step. Some of us in this room don't even have peace with you. Some in this room, we just, we know, Lord, are, they're still in hostility against you. They're enemies of you. They keep running and chasing after their own pleasures, gratifying but Lord, I pray that, that just through your word, which does not return void, Lord, through your word, I pray that you just penetrate their heart and show them for the first time ever that peace that is only through Christ, that they can be justified by faith as you open their eyes and they see the word and they see the price that Christ paid on the cross for us. And Lord, I pray that those in this room that do know you and do have that peace, that they read your word, that they saturate their mind in the word, that they get up in the morning and they want to read your word, that they go to bed and want to meditate on your word, that as they go to work and they go to school and as they're going to and from, that they are just constantly dwelling and thinking on your word. And that, Lord, that, that as they're... they're they're rooted in Christ and as they're they're growing in the Lord that that the fruit of their life is just evident to the people around them so that they can can teach them and admonish them so that they can offer up thanksgiving to you and Lord help us to more than anything just to prioritize you to to make you the the soul the sole object of our desire Stop chasing this world. Stop chasing our own lust. Stop chasing after some sort of worldly gain. But instead, we strive to be like Christ. Because we need to know that it is no longer us that live, but it is Christ who lives in us. We are done with us, and we need to live like Christ. Encouraging one another, bearing up with one another, forgiving one another, and loving one another as we all strive to do this. Help us to do this. In your heavenly name, amen.